guys ready do i need ready headphones to jam? Or no? <clears throat> do you want headphones i don't know do you rules everybody else has them uh <clears throat> so the only rule is that say whatever you want we can always pull it out later mm. like whatever you're uncomfortable with i can send you the entire episode if you want to go through it and make sure it sounds how you want to sound but i want you to be represented how you want to be represented so i also don't want to block you or have it you can swear you can talk about whatever you want i'm fine with everything okay cool um, I'm, I'm fairly open and later if you're like, you know, it, it probably didn't sound right when I said this, I can pull it so okay. I can mark through everything and that I just, you know, this is a sandbox. If you build something that you don't like, you can tear it down. Like this is not, but when things go out, they tend to be permanent. So I want this to be playful and fun and insightful and to get what you want out of it. Everything else can be modified. I'm, I love that. I'm usually I just kind of worn and done yeah. kind of person. Same. I, I know to call myself in the moment when I need to. You know what I'm, <laughs> I'm getting better at it, yeah. <laughs> but I'm not quite there yet. So um, I guess I can intro it. Welcome to the uh, nonprofit podcast. We have returning guest, Adam St. Simon. And with us, you brought your friend, Nako. Stoked to be here. And as a side commentary, personal friend, and I guess space member uh i guess i should say cadet and uh fan longtime listener we have matt mitnick in the room uh you never know really where to take off on these things so i always like to start by well i'd start by saying generally speaking our audience won't really know who you are because they're into death metal most <laughs> i'm still learning who i am so it's okay fair uh so do you want to give a brief introduction of like your history of music just so people kind of have an idea of wh- how you think of yourself and what kind of music you do and sure i'll try to keep it brief but it's a long story mm-hmm. no i started playing piano when i was six years old um and uh it was kind of one of those things that your parents wanted you to do you know and mm-hmm. um I really enjoyed playing classical music for uh, up until I was about 16. So I took I took lessons for 10 years, and um, my brother and sister took piano lessons as well. But it was kind of, I was kind of the one that it kind of stuck with, you know. Mm. By the time I was 14, I was I was um, my first hustle actually was was uh, teaching uh, parents and kids how to do the basics of piano. Um, I was homeschooled, so I had the time ah. to do that, you know. But my mom was, was you know, she's like two hours a day. You got to practice two hours a day, every day. And um, so I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And then it, I think I was maybe was, I was 15 when I started hiring myself out to a couple high schools in my area. I grew up in uh, just outside of Portland, Oregon. Mm. And um, every year they do, you know, their musicals in high school. And uh, so I got to start doing that uh, for a couple years. That was kind of my social, my most social interaction at the time. I was pretty sheltered. Yeah. Um, so yeah, about for ten years at home, because uh, that was sixteen. I stopped taking lessons, and then I think I was fourteen when I picked up the guitar. 
Oh, nice. My mom was very kind. Go ahead. Uh, I was going to say musical influence during that time. Like it's a bit what were scattered. I mean, you got to understand, like, the household I was growing up in was very conservative. Mm-hmm. So, like, um, you know, uh, pop music, radio mm-hmm. wasn't allowed. I'd, so I used to hide, like, a. it's known now I can speak on it, but uh, I used to have, like, I had, like, a little radio underneath my bed with some <laughs> headphones, and at nighttime when I was, I was leaving, you know, I'd listen to pop radio. Nice. Um, and... Uh, to KNRK 97.1 it was like a 97.4 it was uh, indie rock and yeah. um, things like that so in you know but my dad would let us listen to oldies music so you know I still cherish all the music that he introduced me to yeah um, some of my favorites at that time still to this day uh, Paul Simon um, Simon mm. Carfunkel big influences in terms of songwriting and storytelling um, but uh, I developed a, a deeper interest in other music by the time I left home when I was 17 mm-hmm. and I uh, got a job in Alaska playing piano actually oh, no for a dinner theater uh, random but um, that's when I met some folks that introduced me to like a, a it was like the big introduction to like oh there's all this other music out there in the world <laughs> um, that I had no idea about I still have all the CDs actually just discovered them this past winter. I was oh, like, no, oh, here's all my old CDs <laughs> that I got. So it was like tapes and tapes, uh, a lot of indie rock, mm. uh, broken social scene, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Feist, uh, yeah. you know, and then it was like Shins and um, uh, what else was there? So much. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, Modest Mouse was from Portland mm-hmm. and there's a, there was a, a little nonprofit in, I think it's not I think they have it outside of Oregon but it was called Food Not Bombs mm. and if you were uh, uh, essentially if you were living in poverty like I was living out of a van at 17 mm-hmm. like you could go on Thursdays to Colonel Sumner's and get like some bread and soup and stuff you know donated and people oh, would come and just share a meal and we used to listen to Modest Mouse practice because they were practicing in their basement of their house oh no kidding and yeah and um so yeah, those are some 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 pretty big musical influences at the time. That's also when like I started getting into uh, hip hop. Some of my mm-hmm. big favorites: Immortal Technique, yeah, Dead Prez, so good. And then ironically, like ten years later, uh, they became friends of mine on both sides of those. Like, oh no, kidding! Tech and and uh, uh, man, Immortal Technique had such weird influence on me because it wasn't it wasn't them necessarily that i got obsessed with but they turned me on to all the underground hip-hop mm-hmm. stuff that i had no idea existed mm-hmm. and then you know deltron and uh 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 now i can't even think of his other personalities but like all of the kind of subsequent darker lyricism which i i, I you have a very hip-hop feel in a lot of your music mm. is that kind of where that stems from oh totally yeah okay i i grew to love the syllable uh-huh. You know what I'm saying? Like I just liked to to play with rhythm and words. Yeah. And so I loved I loved that style so much because of the way that it felt when it would come out of my mouth. Just the play with words, wordplay, a long syllable, and then also like in tone. So it was just like all those things together was really uh, attractive to me. Uh, man, there's a um, it's right. This just came to mind because of how you said it. There's this uh, book called God Is in the Word. Um, and it, it's not talking about alliteration necessarily or intonation. There's another word uh, for what you just described, and I can't remember it, but it's it basically it says that there is something fundamental to the 
uh, sound in the part of your mouth or vocal cords that produce that sound okay. that has a foundational meaning and it's usually universal. So for the example they give like the good noise where it comes from from the throat and that connects and is there, and this is the, just to put it out it's a uh, research scientist in linguist in linguistics put this out admittedly said this is not complete this might sound like total like woo but here's what i found in all languages the these noises kind of have these fundamental design to it and the gur and the gold and the growling and the god Ooh. all of these things have like primordial um kind of like essence to them but by the time you get to things that slither and snake and are sinful they have like this very mischievous feel to them so the s sets something up a certain way mm. obviously there's like exceptions to the rule but when she goes out and just reading the book kind of lights up all those centers about what you just talked about how they sound with each other the alliteration that moves in and out of it and it kind of gets you like you know, I don't. It, it changes your state to listen to certain words, and I think you're right. Like lyricism and hip hop showed me that very late on, where I didn't. You know, mainstream hip hop is aggressive. It has its own like energy and feel to it, and its own mastery. But I think the average uh, American, especially like from our demographic or whatever will never take it seriously because they don't they hear like the mainstream stuff that's aggressive and it's controversial mm -hmm. the gangster rap all of that stuff they don't hear what i think was originally threaded into it which was like kind of the combination of poetry and and beats essentially well, it's like a rhythmic vocal syncopation essentially i think mm -hmm. and that that rhythmic element of it being matched to the beat being matched to the instrumentation creates this you know elevation of you know essentially like a poetic thought process mm -hmm. and I, it's interesting to hear you talk about like the wispiness as well and like the differences as it relates to singing versus rapping mm -hmm. you know and i think that it, it, each can convey whatever it is that you're feeling or what you're trying to get across it's just a different outcome in the way that it hits you you know whether it's like kind of floating you somewhere you know taking you down kind of like a, a path in your mind or whether it's something that you're feeling because it's so beat heavy and oriented yeah, for sure. There's like an infinite amount of construction that can kind of like inform what is happening. And so like at this time, you're like in Portland, you're broke, you're playing music professionally. Is that kind of, in your head? You were just like, this is what I'm going to do. Oh, my God. No, oh. no, 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 no. <laughs> absolutely not. This is just survival at this point. This was just get out of the parents house mm. and fly by the seat of your pants for as long as it as it takes. There was never, there was, I don't I think I was probably 26, 27 when I finally, like, was like, oh, I could do music as a career. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, it was like 10 years later. Wow. Because there okay. was a good 10 years there where um, I was just following my nose to what mm. was attractive. So um, after a summer in Alaska, it was like I followed a girl to Louisiana. That's what it would take. Yeah, well, I met her up there, and you know, and and uh, you know, she had a whole bunch of friends with her up there working, and we all worked together all summer, and and then um, we, uh, with some other buddies, I I drove from Oregon to Louisiana, my first big road trip, um, and we stopped in L.A., and we saw one of my first big concerts, which was Broken Social Scene, oh, yeah. and Feist at mm. the Fonda, and. It was so cool because like 10 years later, I got to headline there and sold it out and told tell the story of like, oh yeah, 10 years ago I came here and I saw Broken Social Scene and I was like, wow, you can have 10 people on stage? I didn't know you could do that. 
There's two drummers, two drummers, two drum sets on stage. I was like, what the heck? And had two bass players, two guitar players, horns, everything, you know. More is better. Everything. They were just playing. It was just a big sesh up there. Very inspiring. And um, yeah, and then I went to Louisiana. I didn't know what I was doing, you know. In fact, I remember I had no plan. I had like 10 grand that I'd, I never had, you know, I was like barely 18 with $10,000 in my pocket. And I get down there. This from working? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm surprised. There's like, there's some shit that happened down there that I'm just like, wow, I'm glad I made it out of there. Cause like me in the deep South at 18 years old with 10 grand <laughs> was like a dangerous <laughs> recipe. It was like four months of just like cocaine in the morning oh, no and shit. playing risk watching Regis and Kathy and then like waiting for tornadoes. <laughs> There you goes know? your 10 grand. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, just like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wrote some songs down there that I still play today. But mm. after that, it was like, oh, I, I needed to, I, I really liked going to Alaska. It was such a special place in, in the world. And it was actually the first place I'd really ever traveled to. And so I was just like very drawn to this, this massive wilderness. And yeah. I went back. I went back for another summer. Mm-hmm. And at the end of that summer, I didn't know where I was going to go. But a friend of mine had told me about this program called Woofing, uh, Willing Workers and Organic Farms. Mm. And the tickets were cheap to Hawaii. So we just bought some tickets to Hawaii and we flew over there. And uh, I worked on farms. I thought I was just going to be there for like a month or two. And I ended up staying for like seven years. Mm. Uh, Big Island, did you say? Yeah, Big Island, yeah. yeah. I did a year working on different farms, learning about agriculture. I was such a suburban kid, you know, music nerd. I had no idea how to sweat and mm. and how to like use tools and you know do any of that stuff. Which was cool that the program was there to to teach you. Yeah. Because you go and you stay on someone's farm and they show you how to do the thing they do on the land there, and you learn how to like I worked on a lettuce farm and we from seed to store. Yeah. You know. Uh, hundreds of heads of lettuce a day right like all different varieties and like from planting it and you know harvesting it and then packaging it and taking it to the stores local stores and stuff mm. uh worked on like a sheep farm you know what i'm saying like did a bunch of ranching up there and like and uh from you know all also the spectrum and then after a year uh a, a buddy had um gotten a hold of 22 acres and he was like, I need some help. Will you come help me on the other side of the island? Mm. And I said, sure. I don't know anything about <laughs> scaling a farm, but why not? Let's see what we, we can, can do. It out. I'll figure it out. And That's I ended crazy. up staying there with him and building a place for about four or five years, actually. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. And playing music in between. I mean, I would go and, you know, that's Big Island was really where, where I shaped a lot of songs and really shaped songwriting, actually. It was really... Uh, uh, an important place for me in the timeline. What what was going on in Hawaii, like music scene wise, that uh, influenced you? Because I'm not super familiar. You talk about like band, and I kind of like I get the uh, injection of independent like mm-hmm. indie scene. Um, even even the even the hip hop scene has something to do with the Northwest eventually. But uh, what what was Hawaii like, and what was the thing? It really there wasn't really a music scene there. Oh, okay. You know what I'm saying? Like it, at that time, like I thought I was going to be a farmer. Oh, I was in it, you know what I'm saying? I was like, I was growing stuff. I was like doing, the, you know, fruit trees and I was working like six different jobs to like pay them. We were working on paying the, paying the lease, you know, mm-hmm. and, 
And um, so I was like in that world. I was like loving that lifestyle, mm. you know. So music was just on the side. And and so I kind of created a scene there in Hilo mm. where every Saturday I'd go down to the farmer's market and I'd play. And, you know, you, people would give you free food and, you know, uh, and there's there's in fact my first youtube video on youtube is me playing at the farmer's market in hilo and then it graduated to like uh playing at the the one tavern you know had an open mic this is a dumb question are you good when did you know that you were good oh <laughs> right like when did you when did you really like people want to hear this shit or not like arrogant like i had something about me right? that for some reason when i'd write a song and I look back on that young man and I think to myself, I look back on the footage and like just the intention I had of like, you will listen to me. <laughs> <laughs> if you, I know you probably on your phone and you walking by and I'm on the street, but you're going to, I'm going to sing really loud. And uh, I actually recently watched the video of me playing on the, on the block there. And um, do you cringe or are oh you proud? Oh my God. Yeah. So cringy. Cause my voice has changed a lot as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but the spark, the sparkle in my eye, man, there's, there's something about it. I can look back on that young boy and I go like, wow, he really liked those songs. And he, and he, there's just a joy that I had for playing. There's a, just a, just a, a core, like, uh, love for playing a song. And mind you, I probably had like 10 songs at that time and I would just play them over and over again long versions short versions all in one song mm. <laughs> you know and the, i don't know i don't think i i think i thought i was good uh but i didn't know what what, what good could really be you know right i just was like i just loved doing it and i figured you probably are gonna love hearing it and that was just sort of my ego as a young kid you know what i'm saying but i i guess like if it, it, when you think about it you almost need to be protected by what what you know is as excellent so that you can strive so you can see it's within your grasp being like oh man if i just like get a little bit better i'm really good but then the, it just keeps shifting and i think most skills are like that but music if you're exposed to good music i'll give you an example because this is kind of fucked up but i didn't start playing guitar till a couple of years ago i have had like I, music has been a huge influence Say, similar like conservative upbringing not allowed to listen to anything but like phil collins in the air of the night kind of deal which is phenomenal yeah. like i i had an appreciation for it because i've always loved music but then i caught on accident i turned the tv on when i was like really young and twisted sister was on sick and i was like what is this was that like mtv or something yeah, yeah. and my dad came over and turned it off he's like ah, oh, that that's garbage it's demonic it's this that and the other and i was like I want in like I want I like immediately like felt so my upbringing was obviously like a little bit darker side of music it was hardcore it was metal it started be and some of it was upbringing and then I finally got into indie but that really shaped that I'm a music listener and I think our culture we talked about it a little bit when you're back on here our culture shapes people I think incorrectly to think that you are a consumer of music and therefore you don't have a part in it other than listening and cheering or singing along and would you say that changed from like Napster on? Because the the language of like of 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 making money from music changes changed then. I I mean I from the industry why I don't notice a difference necessarily on the industry side because I wasn't involved into it. Sure. But I 
there is something at least with the playing of it. I think it is the internet where people go, Oh, look, that guy can do it. I can try. And then there's all sorts of information of how to do something. So you have the proliferation of skill, Mm -hmm. but not creativity, right? Right. You, You basically have like a ton of, kids who are like eight uh we had uh you know randy Bly, he's uh lead singer for lamb of god um he described this he gets videos all the time where he see these like 12 13 year old kids shredding his songs like technical as you could ever be but they never learn to create anything on their own he says that is a big problem right now when he is part of music production part of like trying to seed the next generation is like there's a lot of masterful copying but not a lot of origination mm. which i think is its own phase sure. um to some degree i think about it because we have um lorraine who was mm. a phenomenal musician on every instrument in the medicines deeply in the medicine scene um traveled playing didgeridoo for 35 years drums whatever you name it and she could like rip it you give her a triangle one time and she just made the dopest freestyle rap with throat singing and like just a creative goddess that just like what the fuck she's unreal she, she was totally unreal and she really she really um shifted my concept of what i thought a didgeridoo I was just like, like the old Aboriginal sound is fine. And it's like, if you can do that, that's a phenomenal noise. But it got me thinking about that instrument being 40,000 years old or whatever it is. If you had all day, like when you were developing your skills on a piano and guitar, I mean, after you get done with work in the farm or, you know, in Aboriginal probably times, hunting, gathering, doing the basic things, shifting your nomadic lifestyle around, the rest of the day is kind of music and storytelling. We're talking like 20 hours a week of like input hard labor. And then we're talking about the rest of the time is sitting around telling stories, informing the next generation. But also I I can't even fathom over 40,000 years, what kind of sounds and innovations got made that were never recorded. We think about it like it's a dark ages for most things because there's no, but that that's an assumption. And I have to think in my head, if you have that long to figure something out throughout the day, you're going to push it a little bit. And Lorraine really revealed to me, like, you can do that on a tube, like on a piece of wood. You're like, that is the most insane thing that I think I could ever imagine. Well, I mean, I want to jump in on that. And I want to say that I think that, yes, you know, we're in this day and age where people have so much more access to education as it relates to learning the technical skills required to play a song um i mean like literally if you know your basic cowboy chords or yeah. power chords you can look up any guitar song essentially yeah. um finger picking a little bit different obviously yeah. but i think that where and this is what we spoke to last time is that looking at it from the communal perspective of it being you know a celebration of it being some form of collective ritual mm-hmm. right when we look at you know to answer your question i think you look at how much did we miss out on in the quote unquote dark ages of music i think it's defined more by like the communities right so there's so many different genres out there but there's definitely like you can put your finger on it when you look at certain artists and you can tell where they're from like you said that there wasn't necessarily a scene at the time in hawaii but from 
like the perspective now, I look at a lot, like there's artists that came up specifically in that wolfing culture. You have Amber Lilly, you have Paul Isaac, oh, yeah. you have Mike Love, and I'm sure that you played with all of these people throughout that period of time. Simultaneously, you have the ecstatic dance culture that came out of the islands. Like literally, like we have like ecstatic dance TM is what I call it because there is like this uh, agreed upon sort of, um, I don't know, like way like uh, systems of operation for what ecstatic dances are. But there was something about. Uh, hold on, I got. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just say this is? <laughs> yeah. That ecstatic dance has a systems of operation. I mean, essentially, there's rules and procedures around what is technically uh, can be qualified or called ecstatic dance. And I've gone into arguments about this it's with various like event producers. The same dance that goes by the Native American name of one who cannot dance good. <laughs> 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 Free flow expression, I, I, man. I could have pissed off everybody with that, but I, I kind of have, I, I have some resentment for it. I mostly because I go to see, like, I went to go see a lot. Apparently, in this like new agey spiritual uprising kind of like medicine scene, I go to see an artist. I really want to see them, mm-hmm. and I think it's the TikTok era. It's the YouTube thing. It's the people want to see themselves in the artist so they want to become the show Mm. and and this has been like we went and saw dave Chappelle right after the pandemic had like started to calm down he walked off stage because people would not shut the fuck up Mm. they wanted to be the show and he was like guys do you and they would just yell like punchlines from his old jokes and he'd be like guys i have new jokes or do you want to just rehash and people just like yelling shit you know uh, let's go brandon and like whatever the thing in the culture was and it was like oh my god people forgot how to be in public and into how to like focus on somebody else everybody is just so obsessed with them being the show and you know it's selfie culture it's that kind of deal but and I don't want to equate them because I'm sure there's some benefits. I love when people move. Obviously, our business is based off of teaching people to move better and more often. But when I see the ecstatic dance culture in front of an artist playing, it's often overwhelming because it's like people taking the selfie culture and smashing it into the artist. Well, I mean, I think that goes to the intention of what that, you know, let's use the word container because that's used frequently within mm-hmm. this culture. Um, what's the intention, right? And in an ecstatic dance, when I said like TM, like that's what I mean by the fact that there are like these rules in these, um, again, like how you show up is very, um, not regimented, but there's a framework for that experience. Mm-hmm. Just because the artist, the DJ, the producer that was booked is somebody that you would like to go witness, mm-hmm. that's not what that intention of that container is. And that's what ecstatic dance is. Mm-hmm. So, like, and I get it. I totally get it. Like, I'm not always comfortable. I don't dance unless I'm moved to dance by right. the music. Like, right. I really need to feel it to be able to show up like that. Um, so, like, yes, like what you're saying, like, it's a healing modality as it relates to movement and expression. And I think that's beautiful. Um, you know, but at the same time, you're right. Like there's, there's, we could go down a whole tangent if we wanted to, we won't, but I will say that like, again, certain artists get pigeonholed into that space from like an industry perspective. And they are, there's so much more that those artists could be doing. And I see it. And I've worked with those artists to help try to provide a a bigger platform to take them into what would be a traditional concert series or sorry, a a concert venue, uh, you know, hard ticket format versus an ecstatic dance. Um, but to, to bring it back to that point is I would say that, you know, as it relates to the scene in Hawaii, that even though your music inherently is acoustic, it's live instrumentation, it's lyricism, there is, there was and is a cultural significance to the kind of that intersection 
between the electronic production of the ecstatic dance space in Hawaii, along with the artists that were on the farms making really great songs. And I don't know, like to me, that's like, I can point my finger to that. I can kind of just feel the inspiration of certain artists. And I would say the same thing, like I love Pretty Lights and I love the music that's mm-hmm. come out of the Denver scene, like that electro hip hop soul and, and like the inspiration that's gone into artists like uh, Vincent Antone or Daily Bread or Late Night Radio. But I can pinpoint that, right? Because it's like this community, like this community that has created a form of, it's a co-creative communal expression. So I think that that is something that maybe we don't have access to mm. when we, talk about again like the dark ages of music um because in so many ways like the creative you know um process is heavily rooted in collaboration in sitting down with other musicians and making songs together you know there's an, like nashville's entire music industry yeah. is based around that concept of, of songwriting together um i would i would interject one thing into that that i think uh was kind of part of what you were talking about which is like I think accidentally or purposefully your parents instilled in you the fact that music is part of living. Mm. And I think ancient cultures, that was true because there was no entertainment. The Africans say, if you can talk, you can sing. If you can walk, you can dance. And that's like a philosophical implication that these are the express, these are the higher vibrational expressions of the same thing. If I'm walking around, I can walk around with rhythm and it's the, and if I can talk, I can start to connect these into some for, some kind of format of music. But our culture specifically sense kind of the invention of recording. But I would go back into, once we talked about like the classical kind of church controlled music, which was used as like population manipulation and uh, kind of the earliest form of uh, propaganda mm. was to separate people from their inherent connection to a universal like sound making oh there's intention behind music without question and i like to look at it as a form of incantation i really believe that there is a magic to music without i don't doubt that whatsoever yeah you can summon spirits with music you can control masses with music without question for sure i I would say that you know especially because we'll probably get into it a lot of the scene that you come from has a lot to do with psychedelia and uh, my my understanding of it now is like it's 20% intoxicant 80% music like vibration mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. like you and Aaron has experienced this when we've partaken in, in ceremonies uh even like I can't remember the last one but I think it was the last one she had a contra indicator she's like I want to be in the space anyway and I was like awesome and she was like it really wasn't any different than being sober in that space was still intoxicating because the sound quality and proliferation i mean it's eight hours of just sound control and that is enough to send somebody off and when i really relate the origination of hinduism it's a it's a religion based off of like sound being the fundamental building block of everything you know the the i think the uh in our dimension when um when numbers meet time, it means sound actually. Like that, that's really the construct of it. When numbers meet space, it means geometry. When uh, numbers meet a problem, it's called mathematics. So you get like these fundamental constructs and 
music has been there in some practices, at least that documented for like 5,000 years. Those columns in the Indian, uh, the old, uh, I, th- I want to say it was a, a temple to Vishnu. And it was like these weird shaped kind of like in and out cylinder structured columns. And they were like, oh yeah, there's like, man, they took a lot of time to carve those out of stone for just like a, it looked like a random design until they didn't, they didn't even understand until later we could 3D model what a sound wave looks like when it expands. And they're like, oh, that's a sound bar. Like they were basically that if you play that sound on all of those, that range. Is it the note or the tone? Yeah, it's the tone, which ends up being that um, like their chant. Mm. And you're like the reverberation, all that stuff is etched into stone three dimensionally. So you're talking about somebody that had some form of synesthesia with or without intoxicants, but logically that the music was the intoxicant. Because I think originally on that, we were talking about like you got exposed to this music. It was kind of like in you, like it was foundational. So I'm curious because I didn't even think until recently that I should even be heard singing. Like mm. somebody should not listen to me. <laughs> right? And, and what well, the story is going to bring up is Aaron, her, her father is probably one of the most insane guitar players I, I've ever heard. He is masterful. And it's like, it's irritating because he's so good but that's what she grew up with her little brother too played from age six and so music his band practices and jamming with everybody she even said she's like i'm sure uh lorraine met her dad finally and they j- had a jam session in here before lorraine died and it was insane like it was one of the coolest things that i've seen um but in her house it was just normal right she took choir she sang my house no you sit and li- you're the audience member and so it took 37 years for me to understand that music is actually a practice that I should bring in. And when I was first learning, Aaron would come out and she'd be like, the fuck is that? (laughs) She'd never heard somebody be bad at music because her experience. So she was like, Oh God, can you like hurry up and get better? And to be fair, I like, I laughed and I continue playing, but it was like, it was funny for me to recognize that you're like, I guess that is weird when you've never heard somebody practice before um, and and they arrived at this thing. But it eventually moved. I think learning music moves people through this kind of journey and you figured out fairly young. And so you're in your mid 20s and then you're what's your what's your what's your thought or aim or goal when you're like. I'm going to make music and people are going to pay me for it. And people are going to, I'm going to change people. Not that you, I highly doubt that it's like a monetary exchange, but in your head, you were like, I want to do X with what I can create. Well, it it is over many years in the, in my twenties because it would become a thing where I felt I can't, I can't actually pinpoint it. Mm but I can remember the feeling. And I think that the feeling is what kept driving me to continue to perform. Um, whether that be like around the fire, you know, or in the summers, actually, I would leave the island and travel in the States with different setups. You know, one point it was like a VW bus and then another point it was like a, 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 a uh, 19, 79 painter van three on the tree with a oh, leak gosh. in the radiator and I drove it across the country three times 
and I every time the radiator would start leaking, I'd put some quickcrete on it, <laughs> and it would fix it. You were van life before van life was a hashtag. Like literally, yeah. <laughs> before you had a hundred fifty thousand dollars sprinter that was set up. Two hundred fifty. Let's just be. Clear. Oh no right. shit. Oh yeah. Jesus. But yeah, I mean, I've had uh, some inf- vans. Inflation. They straight up. Yeah. <laughs> I remember like that. That we called it. The, it was a Chevy. Actually, it was a Chevy, and we called it the Chiaha because the Chevy like emblem had fallen off and it just said she <laughs> and it said aha she, next to it she, uh, and then i had found like a tortoise head and i or no it was a full like little turtle i'd found in the in the in the in the south and i'd stuck it on the antenna and then i had a little uh the window wouldn't wouldn't roll up uh so it was always open and whenever i would um park it i just put a black plastic bag in there to like deter yeah, yeah. if you know, don't come in here yeah it's all <laughs> trash in here <laughs> uh and three on the tree and you know it was just it was you know those were the days of like just driving around you know yeah. and literally with no plan you know yeah i knew a couple people we had a uh, the girl i was dating at the time still a good friend of mine her family had a festival that they would run in and on their farm in uh deep south minnesota oh shit and that was my first time getting flown to a festival uh her family her family on big island and they were like you should come play our little festival out in our farm and um and so i went out there for the first time and then her and i started dating and then every summer we'd get in the van um and drive around the country and i'd play at coffee shops at farmers markets and things like this and we'd end at the festival you know so we were touring before we knew we were touring Mm -hmm. you know and we go back to the island and i'd put on shows i'd do the landscaping the farming the building houses doing things like this and then my on the weekends we play the open mics and like we'd we'd get every we'd get all our friends in the community and we put on a show and everybody would play with everybody and so it kind of was just this like community building thing we were doing without even realizing what we were doing mm. it just felt good we liked being together with people we liked playing the music we all liked to jam together um, but there was no like, you know, and it was all like, all, you wouldn't make any money from it. You know, you sure, just, yeah. then the only money I actually made uh, was like, you know, you'd burn in CDs and that <laughs> CD money, Legit. the CD money would go yeah. into like gas, you know, and some yeah. food. Um, it, it would pay for you to be able to do it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cost. And there was just something so like, it, it didn't feel, it, it felt very original, you know, in mm-hmm. a sense. And, um, but it, like I said, at that time, it was never, there was never a goal. It was the, mm-hmm. the only the, the tr- only true goal was let's go and play some music somewhere. This is this is like my my argument with cultural implications. You could get bigger and talk about a dominant patriarch or whatever, but I think the thing that I see that is really problematic in our society at a fundamental level is the concept that something has to be productive. And by productive, it has to produce something that can be bought, stored, consumed. And this concept of just doing something for the doing of it, um, it is kind of overlooked as valuable. But what you're describing, this, uh, it's kind of like a you found a homeostatic way to allow your music to build and practice and be shared without, I mean, you're kind of fitting through you know, the groove almost like you're fitting in. I'm able to do this and pay for myself to do this, but it's spreading and becoming valuable for people's experiences. And I think why I see a hiccup in most things, you know, even in our industry where we are logically 
leading and teaching people how to uh, best come about the fitness or teaching people the love of movement or whatever you want to describe it as is <clears throat> most people think like, well, if I do it, I have to make money from doing it or I have to, it has to be purposeful. I have to have this like A, then B is equal to C. A goal. Yeah. Mind, yeah. Yeah. Goal derived. And you're like, there's no problem in moving for no reason or teaching somebody with no... Uh, no payback or no compensation or sharing something with somebody just because you love to share things. And when you really break it down, I think that the thing that I finally learned as opposed to like when I was originally, you know, trying to monetize my skill or my love of something, which can be a mistake, which is everything is for give everything away and charge for the implementation of it, right? Like, knowledge is everywhere it's rare that somebody will will apply it and i think music is kind of the same thing but it's been and maybe there's a, a good segue into the the very dark cloud that surrounds music which is like the overlord system right like <laughs> how obviously you're in a you've developed these skills in a way that is beautiful and it's come to a way where as you scale and become more noticed and popular and more relevant in our society you have kind of the uh what i would call the vipers come in because they recognize your value and they want a piece of it and it used to be and correct me if i'm wrong because adam would know this it used to be they would handle all the overhead of scaling production so that more people could hear about you through advertising and marketing they would set up associations and and brand stuff so that you you can become more of a household name and they would cover the cost in producing records. Sure, yeah, they pay. commodify you. Yeah, they, yeah they, they, they commodify you, but they cover it so that you can be free to make your thing. And obviously they have a, it's a investment strategy for them because they're betting that like, yeah, I, bet a couple, I bet a couple million people would like you. Yeah. Therefore, if I put this amount of dollars in, I could probably get this back. Basic business stuff, but at least it kind of had a, um, it had a known variable to it. And then now in the digital age, that has kind of eroded and people don't want to admit that you don't need that. Now you have a following socially, your own platform that you can attract people to, but you still have this highly predatory industry that is trying to like... It's changing. Yeah, It's okay. changing drastically. And I love talking about this. The commodification yes. <laughs> of creative is one of my favorite topics in the world. And you and I have touched on this a lot over the past few days. Um, I think that the record industry of old was built around creating superstars. And so it was like a horse betting mm -hmm. sort of business strategy where mm -hmm. if you have 100 horses that you're betting on and a couple of them make it, mm -hmm. you know, that's offsetting the losses you're taking on the rest of them. Um, you know, it's all been decentralized now as it relates to Napster onward. And like... Mm -hmm. it, only more and more so. I think that, um, you know, as it relates to what you're discussing surrounding the commodification, um, as it relates to giving it away for free and then charging es essentially for the implementation, the same thing's true for most artists when you look at it in terms of like a pie chart mm -hmm. right now. You know, most artists are not making enough money to pay their bills via the money that is coming to them through the DSPs, right? You have to have a following to what, really... What's a DSP? Though? Digital streaming platforms. Oh, okay. so Especially that's, if they don't own their music or yep. their publishing, things like this. I mean, that's the foundational paycheck right there. 100%. And, and honestly, you want to retain that within mm -hmm. the industry because like that's the pie in the sky one day. If you stay with it for 20, 30 years, then that is coming your way. Mm. Um, but when we talk about the implement implementation, where people are voting with their dollars, essentially, and this is why I really do like the industry. I mean, I'm in love with this part of this. Like people that, you know, have created something of 
genuine value that have taken the time and put in the work, um, they're compensated primarily through the live performances, through ticket sales, through merchandise sales. And I would say that the same is true for what you've built with nonprofit and the podcast. You know, like you create quality products as it relates to, you know, your publishing business, as it relates to your merchandising business, and you give away, you know, essentially everything. All, all, yeah, you give away everything. <laughs> but but people show up and support you because what you do matters, because there's yeah. so much value to what it is that you've created. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know, like there's just, I think that that's one of the most beautiful, pure forms of, I guess, uh, as it relates to business, like I love working in this creative field because of that specifically. I think you call it business and people get kind of like a, <clears throat> an irky feeling, but all I would say is like, it's called value exchange actually. Yeah. Right. Like it, once you understand the concept of like, I have something or can do something or provide an experience for you. What is that? We agree on what it's worth, and then you make the exchange. Sometimes it's it's a sometimes it's bartered, right? Some people come in here that don't pay, and some people pay twice because it's an asshole tax. It's like there's certain ways to make <laughs> things um, po- possible by just recognizing what it costs you and what it takes to provide that thing, and whether it's still worth it to you. There's also <clears throat> I've had to say this. There's there's some things that are not worth doing no matter the dollar amount, right? And in your mind, you can imagine what all of those are, but I think we're kind of all prostitutes to that idea. In the problem with culture without kind of like good ideology and in, in the music scene, I think the ideology is mixed. I think from the medicine scene and the singer songwriter saying, because of the fundamental things that you put into the creation of your music, that sets the foundation for your contractual obligations, if mm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because you're singing about the organic and genuine mechanics of the universe, if, if there's like lack of a better way to put it, talking about the concepts of love, forgiveness, um, you know, and, and some of the darker themes too, you're making a recognition of what you want to see in the world and therefore your business dealings are probably going to be a reflection of that. On the opposite spectrum, if I only talk about guns, murder, and hoodie shit, well, it's going to reflect that I'm going into a a very similar vibe into my into my I took my art in <clears throat> I took my art into the hood basically, or brought the hood into my art, and you you will see a reflection of that, good or bad. It's been both. Like you've totally. seen what Tupac did, and it's like insane. Um, you've seen what some people have created with that, but I think that's an anomaly. <clears throat> so when you're, for lack of a, you know, a, a clear segue, like when, when you are creating in this industry, what are some of the like problems and, and solutions that you found that have allowed you to keep your music a genuine expression of yourself? And I think I can assume that because I've listened to your songs and listened to how they change with what I understand your story to be and being like, that's like somebody expressing themselves as they evolve and not apologizing for it. Mm. And it, what what has allowed you in the business side to be able to do that? And what are some of the challenges that you're like concerned about or, or, or could vocalize so that if other people wanted to be kind of what you're doing what what would they look for sure i mean the industry never really shaped how i wrote songs Hmm. Uh, and still to this day you know it was always for me you know never was 
captivated by the idea of writing for somebody else mm-hmm. <clears throat> or writing to um, become popular in a, in a particular scene. I think that I, because I've listened, I listen to so much, so many different types of music mm-hmm. and because of just by nature of who I am, I just refused to be in a box of a genre first from day one. Um, foundation, always guitar, piano, sing, singer, songwriter style. But uh, always wanted to and did explore uh, the various uh, sounds and uh, instrumental makeups to explore what we could do in those directions. So, um, you know, every album is very different. My first album is very acoustic. Second album was like an exploration of like, oh, what can we do with these uh, tools that are provided to us? And in fact, the producer and I essentially uh, made the whole album together and brought in a couple of guys to do a couple of things, but it was sort of just me and him with a lot of just sounds that we copped, you know, and that is still to this day my highest streamed album. And the second, the third album we made was with the band that I put together, mm-hmm. officially the band that we'd had, and um, that was a very rock album, you know, mm-hmm. and we worked with a producer who was a, a rock producer, and and then the, the fourth album was... Uh, was um, experimentation again. It was a kind of a footnote, a solo album of old songs that I'd never recorded before. Be Here Now was on that album. My name is Bear. And uh, um, that was me, my bass player, and my soon-to-be guitar player just messing around and saying, let's just see what we could do as you know amateurs and, uh, and play around with recording some music together. Um, moving into the, the, the last band album was like a, a, a conglomeration of like... Um, of both produced sounds um, with a full band uh, to to uh, using uh, the tools that you can find on programs, you know, and adding uh, some musicianship into it, you know, uh, actual players into the songs. And I love that because you, you're really using the spectrum of what's, what's available to you. Mm-hmm. Um, now, one of the things that I don't know how... Where this came from in 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 my origin story, but and it might have been listening to like hip hop at the time too, uh, that was so anti-establishment and anti-like label, you know, of owning your shit, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved into uh, the second album and we found a partner, um, I made it very clear that I didn't want to have a deal that didn't put me in the driver's seat in the, yeah. in the long game, and so because of the uniqueness of, of, of the people at that table. And I can, I can say very honestly that those people at the table were very, uh, uh, artist forward, um, from day one that we, uh, were able to create a deal that benefited me in the long run. Um, and so throughout that history of working with that indie label, I retained or I maintained the rights to my music. Um, and you know, even though the deal structure was like something like, you know, uh, after seven years, I'd get the masters back, Mm -hmm. but I still own my publishing from the beginning, you know, and never taking a deal because it wasn't like I I didn't even need that collateral at the time either. Yeah. I probably could have used it, but I didn't need it, you know? So it was mostly about the distribution opportunity to be able to get your music out to more people. Yeah. 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 Little services. Yeah. Right. And, um, and you know, my music, and it was was hard. I think for a lot of people, I know it was hard for industries to like sort of 
uh, digest because I couldn't, they couldn't put it in a box. Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, it became very uh, well known in, in sort of the off the farm communities uh, soon then become the medicine communities. And, um, and yet where I'd wanted it to be seen was in say folk world or indie rock world, or like I wanted to be in those communities as well. But talking about pigeonholed, I got kind of pigeonholed into this like space. Yeah. And the the team that was working with us at the time as well was so um in the in that kind of um uh jam bandy world mm-hmm. that that's all they knew what to do with me. You know, they put me in those spaces. Mm-hmm. Now that doesn't there there was a lot of gifts in that because it broadened the community quite a bit mm-hmm. and it got us opportunities and we would start we I think five six years into the band being a thing and being in being in the wheel of the industry you know there was opportunities where we started to sort of tap into the other spaces like opening for the Avery brothers at red rocks or like yeah. you know um playing with uh these other bands but like we got introduced into like the roots music scene in america because we had one reggae song <laughs> one reggae song warrior people and that one song allowed us to be invited into the uh socal vibe you know roots music scenes there yes, was artists and. there was artists like uh soja guys that you know fell in love with uh Kekua, uh and 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 sort of like that jam reggae scene that we were the few songs that we played and then we sort of like kind of were able to like uh hang out in all these multiple different scenes um what are you gonna say well, I was going to say that I think that the entire medicine scene, to some extent, was adopted by the SoCal reggae scene because the festivals demanded a palate cleanser. You know, mm. it needed, <laughs> and, and I, yeah. Vaughn and I speak to this all the time. Um, you know, Von Carrick, founder of Reggae Rise Up, Live at Events, you know, partner in this whole tour that we're doing, um, shouting him out just because of the amount of support he's provided. Yeah. But, you know, there's that's the reason why these festivals have hip hop. That's the reason why you rising appalachia a lot of artists that are in that space have played that because you know it's about the messages of the music i think mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. just because of that one reggae song there's a bigger sure 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 there's a bigger thing there I, yeah, but it well, is I, I, interesting actually how you describe it because it reminds me if you don't mind um it reminds me of it can be such a utility to be undescribable mm. like it leads to a deeper more thoughtful conversation um, it's one of the reasons why this like gym space didn't have a name because a, I didn't want people to be able to go, Oh, they do this. They see a picture. Oh, they must be doing this. They can't define what we do energetically. Nobody can. And if we could capture it, it would be ingenuine because those experiences, just like I think music, like when you get the genuine article of live music, that's not recorded and not kind of planned. And it's like, an expression of what that artist wants to like provide for somebody. There's nothing like it on the planet. The fact that it is not record recorded leads to this feature of existence that I, it, it, it becomes kind of a, a remembrance that like, this is all like, you know, temporary. Sure. And in that it's all going to go away. And the, how you can define something sure makes it marketable easy seo becomes a thing and i can put it in this category or it's like it's hip-hop it's reggae it's this one of the reasons why i probably was drawn to your thing is because when people if somebody were to ask me what kind of music it is it i'd be like ooh, 
Um, it's definitely like um, in the same genre as medicine music, but it is definitely more folk singer songwriter um, without fitting clearly into that genre because there is a hip hop vibe. There is a reggae vibe. There is a something there. You're playing with a concept there that nobody else is. Therefore, I can't categorize you. Yeah, I always say there's something in there for everybody. Do you feel that, <laughs> do you, do you feel that you've intentionally to some extent rebelled against being classified oh absolutely okay yeah and uh, it comes from like childhood too like everything that i was put before me i rebelled against you know you don't know me yeah well you know it's very <laughs> aquarian trait like i was just like i was like you will not tell me what i am you know and uh i think that and what i was when i was mentioning you know yes the, the message absolutely 100 uh is what opened those doors you know to be invited into these uh, alternative spaces um, that I hadn't been in before, you know, and it kept opening doors. Um, and I think that when I look at the style of music, you know, that um, has changed so much uh, intentionally over time um, and who the players were brought to because of that, you know, mm -hmm. um, I find that fascinating, uh, just the way that that sort of um, has happened. But I just wanted to say that uh, because I chose because it was so uh, strongly opinionative about owning my my uh Your masters my masters and my publishing and the rights to my music um it 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 set me up for uh the last four years to um come back to a place of reorganizing my entire musical world and career uh to have you know all my shit over here you know it's not spread out over there. There's not like hands in the pie everywhere you look. It's like just here. And that's, the, and I can say like if you're uh, to, to somebody who's wanting to get in the game, it's like to, to maintain those rights is, is of the utmost importance to your future mm. as a, as an artist to maintain your, your, your source. Do you income. think that, do you think that sovereignty is rare because people are usually oh, not, it's, they're not in a good well, place. Well, it's not designed though. for you to keep it. Yeah. It's okay. designed for you to like lose those things because it's part of what you're typically what you give up Yeah, to, to get into the wheel. And, uh, but it's, I think things are changing as well. I think that there's a more common conversation around them. There's a lot more information out there about the breakdown of, of whose hands are in the pie mm -hmm. and about what, at the end of the day, the artist actually gets, you know what I'm saying? Mm. So there's a lot, way more information about it now than there used to be. I mean, the uh, 13 cent checks from Pandora. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't remember the exact statistics, so I could be wrong here, but I believe that the independent sector of the music business at large now amounts to 35% of the entire global music industry. Mm. And it never used to be that. So that's significant. Like. You know, prior to, you know, music being able to be shared at the rate in which it is via the DSPs, you know, is a much smaller percentage. But the industry at large can no longer ignore the fact that people have more uh, more access uh, to distributing their music mm -hmm. on their own. And so now the deal structures yeah. are changing. Like labels will offer just their services versus, you know, we were talking about this the other day. They'll, you can get preferential deals from the major labels to be able to get your music out because they're looking for whatever business opportunities they can get to be able to stay in the game as well. Stay relevant. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And there's an article on Billboard that just came out surrounding the fact that there's been no major superstar breakthroughs in like the last five years. Like when you're talking about like stadium level. It's Taylor Swift you know, style. Yeah, it, yeah. it hasn't happened and it's frustrating the industry at large, but that goes to show 
kind of the listening patterns that are you know happening amongst audiences globally and i think that that's the coolest thing and you know i mean i want to jump into this because i think it's the direction that we're going is that your music your output on the newest album is incredibly different to the ears of many of your fans mm -hmm, right yeah. and you know watching your response you know in working together because obviously my job is to kind of help tell your story to promote these shows to you know basically let people know that we're doing this thing that's got to be i think one of the most challenging things to any artist that's truly an artist that's not looking to just become a product. Because I think that that's what it comes down to. If you are the ACDC of the world or a band that just continues to make the exact same sound time and time and time again, dun, album after album. Dun, yeah. dun, 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 dun. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> but, yeah. There's a reason that exists. It's because that they've created a business around a specific idea, a feeling, an image, whatever it is. Do you hear something wild sure. about that? Um, I. Just a total segue, but since you mentioned bands like that and the orchestration of like what that, I would call it like it's almost culture control to some degree, if that makes sense. There, I met a guy, um, he now worked for DARPA in some kind of robotic capacities, like working on AI and robots. And he was fundamentally responsible for orchestrating the Fukushima robot cleanup deal where they send in a robot and it goes through and like does certain tasks so they can clean up the radiation from that uh, nuclear power plant That's melting cool. down. Super interesting stuff. He came at it from where we met was I was developing supplementation for beta hydroxybutyrate to help military personnel and athletes increase cognitive processes and change what we think about nutrients in long in long duration efforts is the best simplest way to put it so chemical substrates that allow you to go longer on less mm -hmm. namely we're talking about putting your body into like a ketogenic state blah 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 so we met on that kind of like intersection and after he gave a presentation i was like this this fucking guy is like one of the most fascinating individuals so i was talking to him kind of backstage before my presentation and he, i was like what, what what's your like real was it always cybernetics was it always like computer programming or what was it he goes oh i started in music <laughs> and i was like no shit and he goes yeah i was uh i was part of the kiss project and i was like kiss like the band the band and he's like were you like managing what are you doing he goes oh no i was a government employee and he's like, we, that was a project to put through, through production companies to put a band together that could influence culture. I had no idea about this. Yeah. That it was is a fascinating. pop artist. Pro we took all of the things that we saw people were resonating with and we orchestrate it to be just on the verge of being offensive, but not quite just on the fur. Like men with makeup is highly controversial. But if you make them manly and you make, you know, mm, I'm aggressive, you kind of break that uh, that inability or that 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 usually uh, decisive uh, image and you make it a little bit more mainstream and then you can start to influence culture. And it was like, what the fuck did you just say to me? You just like blew <laughs> my mind. And he was like, yeah, it was like my first, you know, kind of attempt at, you know, mass 
uh, orchestration. And I was like, it's some CIA shit right there. I have no idea how the world works, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking Operation Kiss, apparently. But anyway, I didn't mean to. No, wow. I mean, that's a really cool, you know, that's add into this, this conversation. And I think that there's a lot of value in just contemplating. I that. would drop his name, but maybe he doesn't want me no. to because <laughs> it was probably a private story. But, <laughs> <laughs> but to, you know, I guess to, uh, you know, rephrase is. I think that most artists that are actually artists, that that is going to always be one of their, you know, challenges is dealing with wanting to be liked. Right. Totally, and yeah. if you continue to put out, you know, do you like my art? Yeah. It's and an, and yeah. if let's say that you put out two, three albums that have a pretty cohesive sound, right. Your fan base now expects that sound from you to some extent. Right. And then you shift gears. You get inspired. You want to do something different. You Sturgill right? Simpson it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you are now faced with a lot of fans. They're like, Hey man, what's up with this? You've changed. Mm-hmm. And first off, I would just say like, good, we're supposed yeah. to do that. Yeah, sure. But like, what would be your advice to everybody that's going through that experience as an artist? Mm. Keep going, keep trying it. You know, it's tough because you're going to lose people no matter what you do. And I've seen it. I mean, even just in socials, like, since I put the album out, I've lost people. But then there's like, when you lose people, there's always going to be people that will show up. There's always more people. You know, there's always more people. Mm-hmm. There's always more people. There's always more listeners. There's always <laughs> people that are going to be attracted to something uh, that's new for you that you put out. And they're going to go like, oh, wow, this is fascinating. This is cool. And then they're going to look at the rest of your catalog and they're going to find things that they like about that as well. Mm-hmm. And you might even have people who go like, I don't like, like, like I do have, I don't like the new stuff, but I, I still have the old stuff to listen to. Yeah, you know, uh, but it is. It's it's it takes a lot of courage, you know, to to try something new, and and hope that someone's gonna relate to it, you know. Um, uh, but that's sort of part of the game, you know. As an artist, you gotta you gotta try it out, test it out, and see if it's gonna land. Yeah, and uh, it's like trying new jokes out on uh, on stage, you know. You gotta try them out. You keep refining it and keep drafting, as my last four years is like draft 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 and 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 find the one that works and then go with that one but again it's like you know it's just practice that you have to keep doing it and it's it it's hard when you put something out and it gets shut down and you don't get you don't you have an expectation of the kind of feedback you're looking for and you don't get that and so it becomes disheartening um but uh i think at the end of the day if you fuck with it that's if you, if you really fuck with it and you believe yourself, if you believe what you're saying and you believe in the what you the 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 thing that you've created, if you really believe in it, that's all that really matters. Honestly, that's all that matters. You you've mentioned <clears throat> a couple times the importance of like kind of the four year mark, and there was some like highly controversial stuff that I think most people are aware of, or if they're not, is that something you want to speak to or just the process that surrounded that and what that has like done for you? Mm-hmm. You spoke about it a little bit on stage the other night. Yeah. And so uh, I think because we are, we comment a lot on culture and how it's affected that, that mostly I, we're no, we're known as the world's worst fitness podcast as you might <laughs> guess because we don't really talk about it but our point is that actually fitness is not like about muscles and you know sports it actually has more to do with like do you do you have the adaptable traits to survive and that's why it becomes kind of a remarkable commentary like on culture is because it's a adaptable feature and what you just described was adaptability. And I, 
I don't know all of the things that go into it, but you had some fairly hard things to deal with in our culture, cancel culture, um, bringing attention to sensitive topics, stuff mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about like the last four years and how that's developed you? Well, yeah, I think that I liked what you said about adaptability because that was something I had to adapt to. I had to adapt to a, a moment in time uh, where uh, you're, um, you're part of a, an, ex an experience in culture where, you know, the country's on fire. You know, George Floyd had just been murdered mm -hmm. and uh, we were in the, mid the first four or five months of the pandemic. No one knows what the fuck's going on. And uh, a lot of people got canceled that summer, you know? And I was thinking about this too, because I was thinking about like, say, uh, these other artists that got canceled during that time, they're not coming back in the same way. They're not coming out talking about it like this either, which is really interesting to me. Um, but it just shows that perspective hasn't caught on to them yet, perhaps. Um, but I think that uh, to, to adapt to what was happening was, um, part of my nature I think but it took time um, and you know experiencing a a mob an online mob not a mm -hmm. physical mob but a, a, you know in this fake world of social media mm -hmm. to uh, condemn you for uh, behaviors of a, as a young man um, because what I was uh, what I was being challenged with was um, was rumors being taken out of context first of all mm -hmm. And then turned into a snowball effect of like kind of a dog pile of, of of stories that were just drawn out of um, complete uh, nonsense. And uh, when I looked at these kinds of people, I got, I got really nerdy about it because I went and looked at every single person that was saying something about me. And then, and whether that was somebody that claimed that I harmed them, or somebody that said they saw something. Mm. Um, and then watching the reactions of people uh, who became triggered by things that they were reading, it really um, highlighted the, a collective harm that was happening, mm -hmm. or rather had been happening, has been happening, and brought up uh, a collective wound around um, violence against women, around um, you know uh, the patriarchal um, experience of, of our existence, of our uh, humanity, um, and really for me, uh, as a person who has always wanted to transform from things that don't serve me, um, who is very aware of like places that perhaps I've gotten stuck in, you know, patterns, habits, uh, addictions, and, um, who has consistently been working on himself, you know, and then putting out music that speaks to the experience that I've been having in life. Mm. Um, it just felt really ironic, I guess, <clears throat> in a big way to, uh, to be experiencing this on such a public level where, you know, basically getting hanged in public, uh, for, um, without a trial, you know, without any representation, without any real tools or resources either to, um, then repair with people who claimed that I harmed them. Mm -hmm. the, the interesting, most interesting thing for me was like watching people's, uh, uh, individuals claim that I harmed them. And then, uh, you know, reaching out to them uh, in an effort to repair, only to receive more um, uh, shame for trying to repair. And so you got to wonder, like, well, then what is this really about for you if, right. if it is not to repair? Uh, and um, that speaks more to the probably the mob mentality. 
Like once the, it seems to me that like once the, once the implication gets that, oh, we have heard and people, now there's like power behind it. It's not about reconciliation. It's about further, it's about trying to change what they, uh, what a mob might be represented as a, as a power loss to a power uh, gain and then pushing that power gain is, is, is in, the as as in, in the name of justice in the name of justice you know and 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 you know what what the irony and when i spoke about this a little bit on stage uh, which is fascinating to me the irony of like you know using the same very and I, I don't think a lot of people are so blind to this um to this but they're you know using the same tools mm-hmm. uh that the oppressor uses to then oppress people yes. in the same fashion and and they don't see it like that. They go like, "Oh, we're getting rid of this human being that that has caused harm, who will never, you know, change, and will you know this person will will never make it right, mm-hmm. you know, um, and therefore we should take their job from them. We should um, harass their family. Uh, we should threaten their family. I mean, this it, it's such a radicalized mm-hmm. you know experience where these individuals, you know, are so set on uh, this mission they're on, mm-hmm. a mission from God." You know, it gives them this power uh, to to uh, uh, to then demonize other people, and then, like I said, it's it's so it's so reflective, ironically reflective of the carceral system, where we take people away from community mm-hmm. uh, with no like. I mean, it's so um, like like even sentencing is so arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does it oftentimes doesn't fit the crime, you know. And then we put them away without any real tours or resources to like change mm-hmm. or repair. And then uh, you expect them to like, uh, well, you want them to disappear essentially. Yeah, it's more, well, I think it does reflect our justice system because <clears throat> it has more to do with retribution that it has to do with like rehabilitation. 100%. But small culture, uh, indigenous culture, namely, was about organizing ways that the community would always kind of accept and push somebody in the right direction. There's obviously unforgivables in there. There's things that caused excommunication and even death sentences. When people say egalitarian societies, they imagine like hang pan session with a bunch of hippies and you're like, not not exactly. The the term egalitarian refers to the fact that everybody brings equally into the pot so that they can remain taking more than what you give is actually a death sentence in most indigenous cultures in aboriginal societies it was being stone what they call returning somebody to the stone people which means you were stoned to death and then placed as a representative of your crime as a rock on a road that extends miles so to think that these like societies were like happy-go-lucky is like they maintained order by not just punishing, but giving people the chance to like reconcile sure. and come back to society. Like you, if you are punished for something, you generally come back. And I think because we can do this kind of virtually from the comfort of our own home, it gives you a false sense of power. It's the same thing. Like, man, <clears throat> I don't know if you've ever seen the video with like two dogs behind a fence, just rah, 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 going to, or, you know, you've been in a bar and you see a frat boy and he gets all puffy chest with another guy and his bros hold him back and he gets even puffier. It's like when you actually have to step out and address what you think is wrongship or, or, or harm or something, and you become a, uh, aggressor, if you don't have a threat to your own life, you're not careful about what you accuse people of, and you're not careful about the process for which you take care of the accusation. And you're like, 
anybody that is behind a keyboard accusing somebody of something else does not is not in the right state or frame to actually address the issue organically even if like something wrong happened mm -hmm. it's just human nature yeah when well, they've missed the point oftentimes i mm -hmm. see because then what we've experienced now is you know uh is a conversation saying he shouldn't be allowed back mm -hmm. because he hasn't shown us <laughs> what he hasn't been accountable to us as a fan mm -hmm. you know and and then i go like well you've missed the mark because the accountability process is not for you it's out for, there who have okay. heard the word or the rumor or whatever it's for the individuals who have created harm and who need to be and, and the and the repair things happen between the two individuals um but it's so That's interesting to me that how much people want uh you to show your accountability in some way i don't know what it is for them but they, they go you got to show us too you know yeah. uh we because we're the judge or executioner out here yeah you know um but shame is a very powerful tool for sure. that has been used in these cultures for so long. And it just made me think of experience when I went to the Amazon the first time and got to witness uh, a, a, I guess a trial of some sort, you know, mm. where these two individuals, these two men had stolen a laptop from this, these like 12 or so villages that lived in this area. And they were having like a, a intervention moment where they'd been caught stealing mm. this one laptop that the villages, you know, do their counting on. And all the chiefs were there in the front there, uh, and then the two individuals in the middle, and then all the grandmothers were in front there as well, and then all the people were in the back, and they, the the sentencing was essentially that the um, the 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 chiefs and the grandmothers spent time, hours, talking to them about the way that they were raised, saying you know this is not how we raised you, this is not how you've been taught, this is an outside thing. And bringing them into the heart of like the, who they truly are, their people, who they are, and uh, and in a sense, you know, shaming them for letting them letting something outside of like the, what they've been taught uh, make uh, make them do an act like this and make decisions that were not uh, in alignment for their people, and so the punishment itself actually ended up becoming like a lashing from the grandmothers uh, with like nettles, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but like then reintroducing them back into, and, and you know, everyone's there to witness too, mm -hmm. which is a form of shame too, to be seen, mm -hmm. you know, by your community uh, in, the, in the front, in the face of the wrongdoing. Um, but it, to me, I, I don't think it's, uh, there, like you were saying, there's a path forward for it. Um, so oftentimes in, in, in the current state of shame culture, uh, it's, there is no, um, tunnel there's no light at the end of the tunnel it's just like you get cut off from all it's all a pit the, yeah it is a pit and they want to they want to keep you down there yeah um uh without any uh any any pathway to um repair something and and bring you back into the world yeah there's no framework to it and i've spoken to this massively like if you're accused um, or guilty of committing a crime in the court of law you're issued a punishment and whether we think that that's you know fair or not in terms of like the amount of time somebody's you know given a sentence versus what the crime actually was that's let's look beyond that for a second and just know that like at least there is a time that has been set here is your debt to society that you will pay and when you're done i mean ideally not that this is the way it happens but when you're done you're able to go back into society Sorry. yeah Reformed. i mean i talk about michael vick a lot as it relates to this mm -hmm. you know yeah. and he went right back into the nfl Right. You know, but when you're, you know, found guilty, whether you are or not in the court of public opinion, 
there's no like rules of engagement as it relates to how that's handled, how that's addressed. And so what I'm seeing in this is that also in kind of a tribal way, and this looking in like modern day, you know, social dynamics, it requires the community to show up and support, right? People need to be, we all need to support each other across the board. We are all going to fuck up. We are all, you know, flawed in some form or another. Mm -hmm. Some people's experiences just happen to be broadcast because of fame. <laughs> Thank God and I didn't have Twitter when I was like 13. <laughs> like what the fuck? I, I feel bad for people that are <clears throat> like, I mean, kind of uneducated in the in the harm that could happen from exposing yourself to a world mob and the benefits that we talked about about decentralization kind of go the other way when you talk about decentralized judgment execution mm. punishment mm -hmm. it's like the <clears throat> the producer that comes up with an idea and isn't doesn't need all of the resources and permissions in order to create something has the potential to do great work but also that same person could be the producer of misery by just being vocal online with also no accountability to their actions and so i the interesting part about like the the mob mentality um in general is like it is useful like the the crowd that punished that young man or whatever or the the uh experience he had down in the jungle um i see that as like probably one of the most useful processes that somebody could go to i.e if I get pulled over by a police officer and he's like, you were going 15 miles an hour over and I'm like, go fuck yourself, pig. Like whatever the, like, don't you have something bad? Everybody's going 15 miles. Like I'm paying attention. I have shit to do. You have a, a quota or whatever compared to if I'm driving with my grandmother and she goes, I think you're going a bit fast. Oh shit. Like, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do I'm going to change my behavior because there's a connection to the outcome now, not just a reinforcement of paying fines or whatever. The that part of society has kind of kind of lost, I think, uh maybe you could say it's because of the degradation of family unit, whatever the thing is. But what you spoke to is a very important part of rehabilitation, which is your community that you care about, that you have a connection to. Uh, that you make sure that they know that you understood that you did something that you want to make amends to or at least correct your behavior. You understand the implications. Even if it's not a criminal charge, even if it has nothing to do with that, you go, I did something possibly that that wasn't taken the right way or it put some people at risk or even if there was no bad outcome, it could have just been improperly handled and acknowledging that is is good but the only the only people that should be providing judgment and punishment are the people that are responsible for your actual community mm -hmm. is that if this thing happens to you um obviously i think you've mentioned other artists or something being canceled or having some kind of like retribution for their behavior somewhere and maybe not learning the lessons because I think they see the chaos of it all like you just described and and how human behavior works for me is if you don't give somebody a way out, you basically put them in a position to act uh, radically mm -hmm. because nothing makes sense. There's no rational way to handle something. Therefore, they become irrational about their behavior and kind of uh, it turns into cynicism in my experience where if 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 every time you do something, I give you a different reaction 
you don't know how to act then there's no civility to it and we we if you don't know like when we train people we're conditioning it's called strength and conditioning you think it's about exercise it's actually about conditioned behavior about being rewarded for going beyond your normal self that's what causes the changes mm. right that you can only change your behavior when you're rewarded for changing it you need positive feedback for for shifts if I negative behavior everybody, people only last about six months. So no matter what you do, if it's not good enough, that like, I'm better than you, try to live up to my opinion of you, people have about a six month tolerance for that. And then they go, fuck this, there's no way to win this game. You could extrapolate this to how I think people feel in general because we have an oppressive society that doesn't have logical ways to win in it, right? No matter how hard most people work, they can't seem to get from under the boot of taxation and other government oppressors. Or if you're a certain skin color or whatever, you raise that and you're like, well, fuck it, let's burn everything down. You're raising, you know, you're essentially providing the circumstances and condition where mob behavior accelerates because nobody was given a correct way to kind of find their way out of it. Mm -hmm. How much is your last, um, and we talk about this all the time because like we're artists who kind of need pain and darkness in order to kind of like reflect and contrast the good and we try we try to write positively but a lot of time the positive stuff is fleshed out from the negativity the negative experience of course and i think what makes somebody a good artist is they they know consciously how to separate those two things and it doesn't mean don't ever be negative it just means they're providing the context for what that would happen how how much of your art is influenced by you extrapolating these lessons and what does that like process look like to it's, you? It's all of it, <laughs> all of it. <laughs> every single time. One of my favorite things that quotes that came out of this experience was no more sorries, just change behavior. Mm. And you know, they called me every name in the book and so I had to really take a look at uh, what, my, what behaviors uh, as a young man just hitting the road uh, for six, seven years, what kind of behaviors, what kind of attitude did I show up with that could have brought this upon me, you know? Because I go like, well, it didn't just happen. It didn't happen for no reason at all. You know what I mean? And I think that uh, one of the things that I didn't take as seriously before was, was that behavior, how I was showing up. Um, because uh, you mentioned earlier, I was like, has it always been something that I pushed back against? And and when I looked at those behaviors of showing up to these places that I was like, oh, I don't want to be here, you know, they don't understand me, you know, they think I'm some guru or like a yogi, and I was like, I'd show up with my shirt off and a whiskey bottle, you know, and I'd be like, let's just break this whole construct down and, you know, fuck all. Mm -hmm. And so I was very like, uh, like ugh, all the time, you know, because I even coming from where I came from too, being adopted at nine months old and being raised in a white family and in a white, in a white community, uh, that search for identity was like everything to me. It was, it was my identity, was searching for identity. You know what I mean? And I'd show up and I'd be like, I'd be like, I am indigenous and you know, you know and I was, uh, that was, and here I was in mainly white spaces as an indigenous person and, and so I held on to that thing really tough. And, um, and it was, it betrayed me, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a helpful tool at all. 
because I can see now. In fact, I remember seeing uh, a story someone posted about me that said uh, that I was standing in line with my band at Envision Festival, and uh, one of the cooks, I guess the female, saw how I was walking, and she was like, I, he looked at me, and and the way he looked at me, I could tell he was coming on to me, or he was like trying to woo me in some way. And I was remembering that moment actually walking in there, and I was just like, I I don't I don't remember this individual, but I was like, first of all, I'm with my boys, we're laughing, we're being silly, we're just ganging, you know, and like, um, and I and I thought, wow, even though that was not what I was trying to uh, communicate to her with my eyes. Um, or whoever this was, I thought I can see that my energy, the way that I was showing up in that space was a big turnoff for people, you know, because of what they expected me to be like. And, mm. and so with that expectation, my energy would often be like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to destroy that expectation for you because I don't want to be that, but it would also turn into something more ugly, more unattractive. Um, it became worse than that, you know, and then when, and so, um, I, I can I can say that uh, it, it was the biggest gift for me to um, to have that experience happen because it forced me to a stay home and nest and like and and not move and I think that sometimes when you're traveling all the time as an artist mm -hmm. that movement is also a form of escapism uh, because you're not you're not uh, being faced with the things at home that you have to sort of uh, be at home to deal with. Yeah, um, uh, I would say that's honestly like probably a good reflection of why there was so much hysteria in 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 a pandemic 100%. to start with. Right, people are home and they go, "Oh my God, this is my this is my relationship. This is my outcome. This is what I have. This is how my mind works." And now I just have to stare at it every day, same wall. It would have been a very different experience for me if it had happened not in the pandemic. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like in the middle of a tour, perhaps you know, or like. And so I can see the gifts the universe really put it into this this space mm -hmm. for me to uh, experience during the pandemic when I had to be home anyway, you know, uh, and and to take a, a deep dive into my own my past, my history, my my behaviors, how I showed up uh, in relationships um, with with women and how my relationships with women with intimate and friendships uh, from like from the grandmas to the aunties to the mamas to the sisters you know to the to the lovers and partners and 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 how was how was i behaving within those relationships and so actually for like 2 years i went through like i had really deep conversations one on ones in person over the phone with like uh, ex-girlfriends and like uh, other and lovers uh, however short or long these these experiences were uh, and having like the hard conversations you know did i ever it wasn't how was my be was my behavior ever harmful? And if so, uh, let's talk about that. I want to talk about that. I want to, I want to look at those things and see how um, that continued behavior transformed into this, this, and this. And um, and we, it was a really potent time, and I had the time mm -hmm. to do that. Uh, and it was tricky. Not everybody wanted to talk about it, you know. Mm. Uh, and and so to to answer your question, like those experiences then got put into the songs. In fact, there's a line in the song "Find Out" that I was like, "Oh, you can't heal with somebody who's not ready to heal with you." Mm -hmm. You know, um, I get that now. You know, and to have closure, maybe not everybody's ready to have closure with you. Yeah. Um, 
but to have the courage to go to that person and say like, I think that we ended things in a way that wasn't, um, it was, it was not in a good way. And I want to, I want to, first of all, apologize for that, for the things that I did in this situation, in this relationship, uh, that caused harm. And we'll start there, mm-hmm. you know, that you mentioned that just because you're looking sometimes to, I, I think a lot of people do in fact, try to hurry and rush the, uh, hurry and rush the healing process. Like, okay, yeah. I acknowledge what I did. Right. Get on the other side of it. Yeah. And I think there is an important thing there where like a lot of the times I don't well, I'm not ready on this side of it to, but that's not what it's for. And it is an individual space actually. And I think once you recognize the power in being like, it, it could be both ways. Hey, I'm and this is the Oponopono is like this, this feeling of like, I'm sorry. And I'm, I've, I've arrived at this place. Each person has their own timing for that. Um, obviously the better you are at it, the more you understand that everybody has their own timing, not just in the speed that you can deliver it, uh, but the speed you can recover it from it. I found that it's fairly easy to forgive people for their like trespass. It's like the easiest thing in the world because it's not for them. It's for me. Right. Um, what's harder to deal with is people not forgiving you. That Mm. becomes the like, but it's not up to me. They either recognize my shift and my change and they, be- they believe that I was genuine in my acknowledgement of where I made a mistake. Uh, and this has happened in, you know, to take it out of this context, it's happened in very close relationships. You know, Mark, my business partner and mentor, there was a time period where uh, we were not good. You know, the business had gotten the better part of us and he was going through enough that we couldn't see or communicate with each other clearly. And I was highly offended by his lack of resolve over our friendship, even though I probably unfairly put the onus on him to fix it. And I had to walk away and I wanted to either fix it or be done with it permanently. And I realized that that's my immature mind, not wanting to actually understand that time is the way to develop real lessons that you need the space in order to like pull the the cherries out of these things like the that allows you really a a very clear view is just having time and with enough time passing we figured out that it was basically a bad communication i sent an email on a bad day and said the wrong thing and that for it just amplified because i thought if i sent this email to hurley and fix it or it will actually hurry and make it worse Mm-hmm. And either way, that way I don't have to deal with the unknowns of time. And I think when you are able to accept the fact that like there is no time on this, you know, it's going to take what it takes, but I'm in I'm in it for the long haul. You now understand, for, <laughs> I hate to bring this back to fitness, but you understand endurance, mm. which by our definition, it can only be done out of love, right? Sometimes it's about suffering, but you only suffer for people that you love. You only suffer for yourself when you love yourself. Well, I can relate that to touring, Mm. you know, the endurance it takes to Mm. keep going day after day, show after show for the love of it, you know? So I can, I totally relate to what you're saying in in my own, in my world there. I think it, I know you, now you've gotten onto something that I have a remarkable interest in is like, how do you literally maintain that ability like you are shifting energy in a room for two plus hours and you are the focus but not really you're bringing people into what you're creating 
And that obviously has an extremely exhausting effect on you. And, and that doesn't include the interaction with the people before and sure. after and all well, of that stuff. I want to cap what you were saying yes. before yeah, with just yeah. one more comment that like, yes, forgiveness can be easy. It can also be very difficult. Mm. And then the next thing that is, can is per the user, is tricky is what you do after forgiveness mm. um, in creating a boundary of some kind. And I was thinking about um, friends that I had had that were close mm-hmm. friends, um, and then they, they they became distant friends. Mm-hmm. And the forgiveness aspect is is in those scenarios was easy to say like I could put myself in their shoes and I could understand why they needed to like say what they needed to say and why they did what they needed to do. I got that part, you know, um, and I don't know what I would have done either in those situations. Um, but I can say that. Uh, the sometimes even a harder part is creating a boundary uh mm. with within uh after the forgiveness aspect and then um knowing when you're ready you know when you're ready to uh lift that boundary and invite them into your space again in some capacity whatever however that can look um it, yeah it just made me think of that when you were talking about i think that's a really good point i, I don't think people recognize that like when you say the word boundary, some people just think of it as like, oh, I just have to tell people that I can't do this. But maintaining a boundary is actually like by you saying, I'm not going to let people do to this. Essentially, what you've set up psychosomatically is like, this is something I have to pay attention to constantly. It's just like if I put a fence around my farm, I can't just ignore it. That just means that's the border that I'm paying attention to, to see varmints and people crossing that barrier so they they don't. They don't interrupt my harvest is essentially, you know, the big allegorical thing there. And I I think you're right that people have a very hard time not just setting a border, which is a a very hard thing to do with some people, especially loved ones or people that you're close to. Mm -hmm. Um, It isn't it's ultimately a very real act of love to explain to somebody that you care about that you can't tolerate this. But then being mindful of that, it doesn't end there. It takes this maintenance because if the relationship is important, then it takes acknowledging that that border can't just erode because then it just becomes a flippant thing that you didn't mean. So if I say, this is what I expect and this is, you know, this is my requirement in order to continue this relationship. What you're really saying is like, I'm going to pay attention to this all the time to ensure that our relationship succeeds, to, 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 to make sure that we make it to get the good stuff out of this interaction between us. I think that's a really beautiful way to, to think about it. And all the truths must exist at one time. And I wrote a song about that in the mm-hmm. album and spoke on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I said, get the fuck away from me because I can still love you when you're far away from me. And even for me to get to the point of saying that was like a triumphant moment, you know, mm. I was like, oh yeah, I can still love you. I don't have to have you in my life as it was before, you know, but I still love you and I want what's best for you. I don't want any harm to come to you or your family, but you know, for me to protect the vibe that I've yeah. created now, you know, as I've transformed and become this person now, uh, this is the boundary now. Yeah, I think yeah. so many people could benefit from like understanding that feature of life that you don't send somebody off and just hate them, right? You know, there's a, I think we are binary or we want to be binary. Mm-hmm. Like if they're not in my life, they're not somebody or uh, it might've been, you know, how relationships fall out. We very commonly either put them in one of two categories. They're either in here and I yeah, love them all yeah. the time, but there's something in between there where you're like, 
at this time, this person is not useful. Their energy is not productive for me, or it doesn't it doesn't serve me in a way that makes either of us better. Therefore, I have to have kind of an in between thing, which is like I love and appreciate everything that they have given and continue to give me, but the proximity needs to change in order for me to maintain that love. Because if it turns to anything else, it's going to turn, it's going to change what I think about that person. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to speak to that. I think that love real love is unconditional it is enduring whether we like it or not like that's that is real that will always be Mm -hmm. there but relationships are not relationships are conditional right Mm -hmm. and we have agency as it relates to that and i think that you know through i mean i really like applying the concept of love is endurance and endurance is love to that that concept in and of itself Mm -hmm. because if you truly embrace that if you know that to be like universal truth then there is no choice but to be able to hold multiple truths as it relates to the way that we relate with others. And th- this on that point, sorry, yeah. and then I'll let you keep going. I, I, and because this this draws the it brings the attention purely back to the philosophical implication of love and endurance, how we define it. Because essentially, when most people say they're doing it for somebody else, they're actually not being completely honest about mm. what they're doing. The best thing that you can do for another person is take care of yourself. 100%. And that that is the rules of learning longevity and how to make it to the end is understanding that like, may, maybe I set out because I loved everybody in my family and that's what made me want to work on building a business or building an enterprise so that I could take care of them. In order to do that, I have to actually put up this boundary so that I can actually work on myself, make sure that I have what it takes physically and emotionally and psychologically in order to do the long haul. I think simplifying it by just being like, well, I do it, I can suffer for anybody. Man, you can do that for only a little bit because the real... The real, uh, the real way to love other people is to really love your existence first. That's I, I don't like the term like just because it's kind of gotten out of hand. You got to like learn how to self love or whatever. It, it has become so generic that I think it loses its power. But when we talk about maintaining yourself through a desire for a love of existence, it really changes for me at least what I'm trying to do, which is be here for longer and in more aware and in better ways well i mean i think that and i'll wrap up my Mm -hmm. thought with this and i think this plays off this perfectly is how are we honoring the love that we are receiving i've thought about this with you Mm -hmm. in our relationship i've thought about this with you in our relationship you know like you have invested into me as friends and -hmm. colleagues and i want to examine you know consistently how i'm honoring the love that you have offered me right mm-hmm. and really like the application of that is loving myself more right being able to show up better for myself be, be able to show up better for those around me my community right because we're all trying to lift each other up you know walk each other home whatever mm-hmm. language we want to use here like that's a paramount function of that that's mm-hmm. what love essentially should be doing like that i would hope that that's what like an outcome of it is at least you know that through through this exchange of love we're becoming better, we're growing, right? And we're able to, you know, take that inspiration, take that example, right? And then continue to expand essentially the sphere of its influence to go beyond. So you're going from love of self, you know, love for self, love for other, love for family, love for community, love for nation, love for the world, right? Mm-hmm. Like how can we continue to um, increase that, right? To, to bring more of that, uh, into our experience and into the experience of others. And so I think that like looking at like 
not just doing it from a perspective of like obligation. I think that that would be like the shadowy side of mm-hmm. it. But again, it's like a side of honor, like really mm-hmm. thinking about how we are, you know, showing up for ourselves, showing up for others. And, you know, again, if if it's true, right, then I think that there is no choice but for it to be enduring. And it's okay at times. Mm-hmm. I think this is another element. It's okay if you don't love something, right? Mm-hmm. Like there are things that we don't love. And I think one of the best things that we can do is become better at discerning you know, the things that we don't, so we can truly be in alignment with the things that we do. Yeah. This is the, um, where like one of my issues with some communities that like really love flowery language, you know, the one issue is that they usually words that they don't know what they mean. Like taking the quantum physical, you know, Newtonian physics into spirituality is sometimes a no go for me (laughs) because it's like, it doesn't really work like that way. But, um, in the other sense, uh, because I, I think people don't recognize that everything costs something. And so when you when you maintain or you assume the expectation is that everybody needs to be compassionate for your circumstances, that's an entitlement that you don't deserve necessarily, right? And, and, and it gets kind of passed over, like everybody deserves compassion. And you go, uh, it costs compassion costs something it is an energetic quality because compassion is basically describing understanding and understanding is describing learning and if you don't put those two things behind your investment of compassion then it's not real it's 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 just empty words that you say it's the, performative yeah it's say i said prayers and thoughts or whatever and that falls very loosely, but real compassion is like, okay, what is happening here? Now it's an investment in my energy to be able to try to understand a circumstance and not do anything about it. Mm. That, that, that's real compassion is non-intervention, right? The, and you'll see this with most of yogis and monks when they, when they really do develop a very deep philosophical practice of compassion, it's non-intervention. They can watch people that they love very, very dearly self-destruct because they know that there's that, that that there's lessons in that and it's their journey to go through. And they can just feel for a second because they understand the negative uh, path that they might be on, right? They like stealing and dishonesty and uh, all of these human behavior traits that we all, all of us will fall victim to at some point or, or partake in. It's like there's a reason why we fall into that, and usually it's loss of self and all of these other things. But the to to understand why somebody did something is such an important. Under, I mean, maybe that highlights my interest in like knowing the details of how you create such insane vibrational uh, music that like shifts people. I watched it in the room. It's just like, and then you shift them, and then you shift them, and then you shift them. And it's not necessarily, it's probably in the moment feels really good to you. And so you get, you get energy from that. But after you probably crash a little bit, I oh, take yeah. it. <laughs> it's kind of. That's why I didn't show up yesterday. Yeah, yeah. Totally, and I, <laughs> I understood, you know, it was a, it was a very easy uh, thing to adapt really quickly because I saw what you did and I saw how the crowd reacted and I saw the energy that goes into it and the, the maintenance over the details is shocking and I know when we put on events or breathwork classes or anything that we do symposiums uh, man it takes just from one event with maybe 20 or 30 a fraction of the people 
the performance that we're doing takes, I don't know, weeks to recover from one. So I can only imagine the stamina that you've had to uh, build up in understanding that when you're when you're manipulating these kind of energies in a room that it can be very exhausting is that something you want to like is that something you realized or you just like learned kind of well i think that it's only been recently that i've kind of um was well, taken the the rest part more seriously mm. um the three the three things that are the best for recovery are sleep water and good food i guess there's four Sleep, water, good food, and gym. Yeah, you know, movement. Uh, yeah, yeah, movement. And uh, uh, before, before the most, you know, I think in the past, um, I didn't take that that rest and recovery as seriously as I do now, um, because I wasn't in the mentality as an athlete should be. You know, to mm-hmm. take care of, particularly for me, take care of my lungs. Mm-hmm. Um, and my voice. Yeah, you had a vocal cord injury you mentioned. Yeah, and then I got pneumonia in December uh, that nearly took me out. Um, it caught up on me real quick. I was in Tahoe, and I collapsed after a show. And uh, we, we, we sussed that I must have aspirated something mm. a week prior, and then it, no symptoms um, arose. But mm. I went up to high elevation, and then, and then like right after the, the gig, I collapsed and was like, Oxygen was like a 42, like my oh, lips sure. were blue. And yeah. It was like, it was crazy. But, uh, you know, that that recognition of like how important my my lungs and my voice are to me. Mm. Um, but uh, I wanted to say that like, you know, it, yes, it's the songs, but it's also like, I guess, how I'm showing up to perform them mm. that can become, is it becomes captivating. Uh, there's an energy in there, right? Mm. And I think that, it is a trick. It's very tricky to, 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 to every night try to be do the wizard thing. You know what I'm saying? Because you're working with very different people every time. Incantations. And very different. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is really wizard shit. It's really interesting because you know you have an expectation sometimes when you go into the room mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, I you know I I not only do I want them to do this thing, but I need them to, in order for me to like be at this level of best, if you will, and you know. I think the last two shows is a great uh, example of like two very different energies. Mm. Denver was a very on their feet the whole time from the jump. Uh, sing, 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 very celebratory. Oh, you know? wow. Okay. And, um, and, and, and Salt Lake was a very um, uh, late, not laid back. It was just very, um, uh, what is the word? I'm, you used the word reverent. It was very talking. reverent. Yeah. Because it was very like, it felt very honoring in the room. People were very honoring in the room. It was like the space was like very, um, prayerful in a sense they were like mm. ready to just sit and listen and chairs do that to people as well I think which mm. is is really cool I think uh, to think about because it puts you in the seat of like I'm here to sit and listen you know what I'm saying like yeah. if there's no chairs you know it creates a different experience of course because you're going to like dance and, and also in Denver there wasn't a bar I think that alcohol, which is wild, man, because alcohol yeah. changes it. Alcohol changes the whole dynamic. <laughs> we talked about this, but, there's, but, but there was alcohol available at Soundwell on Sunday night and there yeah, wasn't yeah. on Friday, which is an interesting kind of phenomenon. There. Yeah. Very interesting yeah. dynamic. Well, people will like get drunk before they came to the show. But. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I want to speak for Salt Lake in that regard in the community that showed up like that. That's what we have here. Yeah. Like Salt Lake is a really, really special place. And I think that just, you know, you have enough amazing people in a room. Paris Hilton once said that a great party starts with a great guest list. Right. 
And in this mm-hmm. case, just thinking about all the people, like the, I'm talking like brothers and sisters and just loved ones that showed up on Sunday night, mm-hmm. like that collective intention, you know, and attention towards being present with you after so long, mm-hmm. like that shined through without question. Big facts. Yeah. yeah. But it is tricky because, uh, you know, you're up there for, you know, two hours and, yeah. and you know, you, you know, you've got some stories to share, but there's a lot of moments you got to freestyle some shit. Sure. Yeah. And which I did. And I felt like that there was in my brain, I already had like bulleted some points I wanted to like pull out, mm-hmm. um, of the, of, if there was time to, to do that. And there was, um, I think that, uh, it's moment to moment. You're kind of just having to work on the fly. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes there's interaction that feels natural between an audience member and yourself. Um, that's unscripted, you know, and like you just sort of, you're you're pulling from like, you know, years of doing this and pulling from different, you know, ways of responding to whether it's a heckler or somebody who's just like, you know, just, you know, you you know, yelling names of songs out and stuff. And like, you know, you're just sort of, you just got to play with it. It's because for me, ultimately, like at, at the heart of who I am, I'm just a very playful person. Mm-hmm. I'm just a big kid. <laughs> I love to laugh and I love to tell jokes and like, and I love to bring that into my performance space because it's that that's where I feel the most at home. Mm. And I think that doing a solo show like that is 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 it, it brings people into the living room of my life in a sense. You know, where we're just we're hanging out. It feels casual. Um, we're gonna tell some stories. Um, and I think you're going to probably relate to some of these stories and then you're going to hear the songs in those stories and, um, and, and you'll feel the genuine authenticity of that, that full narrative mm. before your eyes in that sense. I think, you know, there was some point at some, I think some guy yelled a song finished and he went like, that was good. Like, <laughs> it was like the most, and you took, I think it was like enough. I think when people hit the right tempo, when the room comes down and you can, hear them but you played it out like you 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 helped it make that a good thing as opposed to a heckle or a thing that interrupted the performance you had a really good way of taking things that were people were yelling and you know making it bringing them into your experience even deeper as opposed to blocking them out to do some kind of rehearsed thing yeah i think i've always wanted to break down the this sort of pretend barrier between the the audience in the stage mm-hmm. the fourth wall the fourth, fourth, yeah. the fourth wall yeah, yeah exactly and and sort of like put it in perspective for them and be like i'm just another person up here yeah. imagine doing this and i'm sitting there you know like you guys can sort of put yourself in my shoes for a moment you know yeah um and yeah i i i as an artist i am very much like analytically like observing and studying my actual performance you know mm. like the song itself how did i sing it you know was my timing okay yeah you know did i did i take a beat there did i breathe right did i did i catch those notes the way i wanted to you know did i hold it out as long as i wanted to um you know did i how were my notes tonight you know was it a bit muddy did i do too much sustain you know mm. how was the guitar sounding you know so in my mind i'm thinking about all that shit at the same yeah. time as I'm like, oh yeah, I got like all these people in front of me. <laughs> uh, what am I doing? Oh. Well, I mean, that's a, I think people. There's a lot of stuff happening at the same time. For sure, and that's a, like you're talking about performance. I mean, in in people, we put this all the time. When we talk about human performance. Most people think like athletically or something like that. And it's like it's it's a cognitive. It first starts kind of as a 
as a construct in the mind about the intention of what you were trying to do. And then so quickly, in order to be very good at something, you need to move things out of dedicated conscious space into subconscious uh, behaviors patterns that you just recognize and you can consciously be aware of while you're doing something and i always i always comment on the fact that you know if i play a song in ceremony or something um it, it i first of all have to rewrite what i'm doing almost every single time because i'm so uh sensitive to it you know as in like man it might be a one in ten chance that i play well you know, it's like it's on the cusp. I'm not as well practiced or have as much experience. So you're always trying to like, okay, and then I I want to put on a, I want to put something that would help some, it would help somebody in their state uh, emotionally or energetically or just put this song in them as a, a form of a prayer because it's in ceremony, it would be that, but also recognize my desire to perform inherently has an ego attached to it and the moment that i either think i fucked up or think that i do good is the moment that i'm taken out of it oh like multiple times throughout a song like oh i nailed that oh fuck now i fucked oh i fucked up and you're like it's back and forth and you're just making these like i guess the more experience you get i i take it um that you make less of the mistakes because you're less conscious or or not conscious but you're less cognitively invested in doing something good and more or less letting your experience and talent kind of take over. Is that, would that be accurate? Sure. I mean, it just takes practice because the more you're doing it, right, the more you're performing it Mm -hmm. uh, and the more you're observing how your body is doing in that performance itself, the more it becomes second nature. Mm -hmm. And then you can focus on the entertainment side of it, at least for me. Like once I know I mean, I'm practicing and practicing in real in real time yeah. before, in front of people, and then the more that you're doing it, and that's what you know tour does too. When you're doing it over and over and over again, you 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 can focus less on the actual how did I sound, what's the notes, you know, mm. uh, and you can focus more on the performance of it. Yeah, you're performing the song now because you know it like the back of your hand, mm-hmm. and you know the movements, the steps, you know where you're standing, how you're breathing, like each are you gonna lean into this part, you know. Um, you know it so well that you can really, uh, you can you can really um, perform it as an entertainer, you know, with your full being, and and then it becomes something very very different and and, and I would I would say even more special. Yeah, I want to jump in on that on a second and address the point that you made regarding um, you know the songs that you've shared in medicine ceremonies that mm-hmm. we've sat in together. And I feel that within our community that we've sat with, that in many cases, when members are called to share a song, I think it's less about trying to impact those around you in that space, right? Mm -hmm. Even though that might be your intention, that's beautiful. I think that the value in that comes from just simply sharing a vibration that is yours, right? And then being seen in that. And that's where the the beauty of like the community element, the attractiveness of like that community really comes into play. Like it's the, um, you know, it's the Sangha in that moment, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think that what I've witnessed you go through within these last two shows, and you even spoke to it on Sunday, is the same thing. Like, yes, you are an incredible performer and you've cultivated, you know, your discipline for decades now right, to be able to perform the way that you do. However, what's so special about this, and my friend Mavi was speaking to this after the end, at the end of the show, at the end of the night, 
is that you know like you're just up there allowing yourself to be seen right now you're sharing a very genuine resonance and like in your mind like all the things that you just shared i'm sure are true however like this is some like rootsy stuff that's happening right now like it's it's folky in that way it's you on stage by yourself exposing yourself sharing your soul for an audience completely authentically and the way that everybody's shown up like that's the fuel i think for many artists like that's what allows so many Mm -hmm. people in this industry to continue to forge forward show after show after show after show and one thing that most of these you know fans don't realize is the crash that happens afterwards (laughs) you know like that is a reality like Mm -hmm. and that's where you know we talk about this from a perspective of endurance and it's not just for you it's for everybody on your team as well i'm feeling it like yesterday i was spent and i'm not the one up on stage holding that space in that regard like you are um, but we're there with you. In well, yeah, that. you you're specifically, I mean, holding the space on the back end of things, totally. the unseen and part of the unseen world. It's the same. It, you know, it's exhausting. Mm. But I love it. Yeah, absolutely. So and I was I gonna say, yeah, and I was gonna <laughs> say that um, that uh, there were so many low points for me in the last four years where um, I didn't think that it still had that performance part of it still had value to me that I. Am I, you know, the question was, am I still having fun? Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, to be in those um, spaces that we've been in the last weekend um, and to play those rooms and to be with those people, uh, the the reminder of like, this has value, this is, this has worth to it, uh, is what I'm constantly getting out of it. You know, mm-hmm. I'm going up there, like you're saying, just authentically being myself um, and getting to just witness like real value and worth in real time, be reminded of it as I'm on stage, as I'm singing with people and hearing the stories afterwards or beforehand. And, um, it, 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 there's so much mana in knowing that what you've got to offer is, is not only, uh, worth it to you to, to, to show up for it, but that the, that there's real value happening and you can hear it and see it and witness it and, and touch it. It's, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to me. I, I articulated it to a friend of mine that wasn't able to make it on Sunday as just being able to witness uh, the inspiration and the hope and the faces and the embraces of everyone that was there. You know, like to me, that was really it. Like I could, I was able to actually see it in the eyes of everyone that showed up. And to me, that's why this tour feels so important. Why working with you has been so rewarding in that regard. It's because the impact that, this is having is is bigger than us and it's the most visceral reminder um that i've had in a long time for you know the reason that i've chosen this path and why i do this why you know every time that i I am responsible for producing an event and bringing people together i'm healing a little bit of that loneliness wound that i experienced as a child and the more that you do it the more you know subtle that reminder might be you know at a certain point when you're just like working with a team that produces hundreds and hundreds of shows a year Right. There's certain ones that you'll really like cling to because you'll have that Mm. that moment where you're in prayer in that moment. And I just feel that, you know, because of the circumstances of this tour, because of, you know, the path to getting here right now, every single moment is just it's been unreal so far. It really has. And I'm really, really grateful for it. Likewise, man, I Thank you so much for taking the time. I want to be mindful because I know you're on the road and you have to get to the next spot. Um, is there anything else you want to share that's a um, that would be a helpful reminder um, for people that want to check you out and want to like learn more about you and your music? 
and then where can they learn about that stuff? Mm -hmm. What was the question? Is there is there a helpful? Uh, like, uh, yeah, uh, I guess. Well, actually, point people where they can learn more about you. Sure. Well, you can go to my website, <laughs> which is nachos. No, just saying. It's nacho.com. <laughs> it's n a h k o dot com, and from there you can you know find all the links to all the socials and. Um, things like that and videos and things like that but you can find all my music on youtube and spotify and you know um but uh tour dates and all yeah stuff. Yeah, cool. yeah all the awesome logistics but um i guess you know i think that I'll, I'll just touch on like the name of the album is trenches the name of the tour is trenches and where that comes from and and i think i think that it's it's a bit of that phoenix rising moment for me now um where i got to go through one of one of the most intense and transformation transformative dark nights of my soul and you know we go through many of those in our life and this one was a was a heavy hitter <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know having to experience that in public is is even more intense you know, and brought so much more perspective for me on, on what it means to be a public person, you know, what it, and what the privileges are and what also the, um, the, the negatives, I guess, in a sense, um, and how to embrace it without, um, uh, to embrace all of it, all of its, all of its pieces, um, because there's certainly, you know, times in that experience where I was, where I hated it, you know, mm. hated being a person that everybody, I hated being the guy, you know, and then to be the guy that, you know, to watch fans go from, you know, uh, loving you and then the next moment demonizing you is a, is a wild thing to experience um, and triggered all those pieces of childhood of wanting to be loved and liked and, not wanting people to think that, you know, uh, you're a bad person or like wanting to make things right, but not knowing how to make things right with you. Mm. Cause I didn't do anything to you. You know what I'm saying? Um, but, uh, realizing that you cannot change a person's mind. Um, and so I think that, um, I think that, uh, if you're going through a hard time that feels like there is no support or resources or tools, or there's no way to, you don't see an end to it because, you know, uh, you might have lost your job and like, your your parent is dying and you lost your best friend and somebody committed suicide and like, it just like, in this post-pandemic era too, I mean, people seem to be getting hit like everywhere I turn, somebody else in my life or a friend or a community member or whatever is like going through like that uh, extraction experience of like getting pulled away from the reality they knew and being... Uh, however traumatically presented to you the things that need to change mm. you know and then you gotta go into your training <laughs> to 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 make it through that and i guess i guess that it can be it can be a really dark place because it seems as though you know they say it's a they say it's rock bottom but there's no bottom there you're just free falling Mm. until you can like grasp onto the side somewhere and hold on and <laughs> then start climbing. useful because at least you know you're there. At least you know there's free, a bottom. Yeah, free you know fall sucks. <laughs> but you're just free falling. And so I think that um, 
I think that the 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 thought I often have is uh, as I talk about you know who I have become now, of uh, as I've climbed out of the trench, um, that there's uh, that it's that there is hope, uh, but you got to earn it, and you have to like really, mm-hmm. um, uh, you ha- you have to search for the right kinds of people to help you through those. Uh, you have to find the right mentors, and it, it takes. A long time sometimes to find the right mentors or the right kind of support for you in particular in your experience you as the unique person that you are to find the right kinds of uh, mentors and spaces to be in in order to uh, uh, make those changes um, and and to not forget and to not forget that shit when you're in the moment of it because I went so dark down in there that I was ready to kill myself you know what I'm saying and I never got to that point in my life where I was like fuck it you know, and wanted to be dramatic about my exit, you know, and, and knew it, even knowing it, even thinking that thought of like, Oh, I could, I could cut this shit out right now. And wow, what an exit that would be, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And to get to that point where I was so sad and felt like there was literally nowhere to go from here, uh, have been doing, you know, the interpersonal work, um, had been working with, um, really potent, uh, coaches men and women in my life uh but it that it, it felt so hopeless you know the mountain i had to climb felt so uh tall and i didn't feel like there's any way i could actually climb that mountain uh let alone physically endure the process of it but also emotionally uh, uh carry all the baggage i was gonna have to bring with me mm. you know to process the climb uh, and to process why I'd fallen off, you know what I'm saying? So, um, I guess I'm just saying like, I understand how, how, uh, uh, dark it can get and how hopeless you can feel. Um, because I felt that way many times in my life. Uh, and now I I feel as though, uh, this big, um, experience I've had, uh, and as I'm looking at the gifts of it, you know, and as I'm looking at the, 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 the the things that I've been able to take away, my big takeaways, um, uh, and as I've seen myself, uh, you know, completely in the raw, broken down, you know, uh, here are my flaws, here is my humanness, you know, uh, and and you know, naked and ashamed, you know, like oh my God, here's all the things, you know, you see me now, you know, mm-hmm. um, to to come from that place and then to like say all right, all right, I can. I will, I must climb, uh, that you will find the courage to do that. And it, sometimes it does take a long ass time. Um, but make sure that there are good people as your pillars to carry you because you can't do it alone. There's no way. There's no way. Um, so I think that in closing, in closing, uh, that, um, uh, prayer for me was a big, uh, a big winner. Um, I did a lot of ceremony over the last four years, and every time, in fact, Uncle Doug and I were talking about this right before the show. Uh, when you're paying attention, uh, the things that uh, the, the things that happen in terms of a prayer being answered, um, uh, and when you're paying attention. Uh, and you're seeing the the um, the the 
the prayer be manifested in whatever way the universe wants to uh, show it to you, um, uh, those doors begin to open, and you gotta you gotta take that cue and mm. walk through the door um, and leave all the shit behind mm. uh, and and begin anew. Um, but uh, I think that I'm grateful for the 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 ways the the forms and the ways of prayer um, in my heritage that have been brought back to me to um, to to uh, uh, reestablish a sense of um, belief uh, and reestablish a sense of purpose um, that I had lost, you know. Mm. And so uh, now I get to now I'm in such a joyful place where I get to I get to uh, show up truly as myself on stage um, and embrace being the guy, you know, and embrace that gift that I get to be the guy you know and to share uh, my journey and 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 knowing full well that there are so many people out there that that uh, are in adversity or in um uh they are in uh they are against the idea you know of me out there sharing my gifts uh and see that the love is far more present and far more powerful and far more greater than any kind of uh opposition out there um and uh, it's a it's a truly magical moment for me uh, to to get to do that and to see how uh, how that how all that stuff I just talked about really works. Mm. It really works, uh, and and that is what's put into the new music, and that is what is uh, I guess ultimately what really is medicine for the people. Dot dot dot. End quote. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, man. I, I appreciate you taking the time, uh, trusting. Thank you, Adam, for well, connecting you for, us. And, yeah, and thank you so much. Also, your 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 music has been obviously life changing for a lot of people. Uh, I'm glad I was exposed to it. It is something that uh, is remarkable for me to try to understand the in- intricacies of. And uh, I hope all the success and all of the things to you because you're you're definitely an articulate uh, person and and also aware about like kind of your journey which i think is rare in this world people to be aware of like the benefit and the you know the whole thing so uh everybody go wherever you need to go to thank you both for coming and hopefully we'll see you soon thank you so much appreciate you